Hi, welcome to the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows uh, from Snow Pro Ski School. Uh, I'm a ski instructor based here in uh, in the Port du Soleil uh, in Switzerland. Um, this week I chat to Scott Plever and Scott is, uh, is the owner of uh, Inside Out Skiing and um, I've been looking forward to speaking to Scott for a while because Scott has quite a different model um, compared to some of the other ski instructors that we've spoken to so far. So Scott works year-round uh, in an indoor snow dome in the UK, um, and he also then takes his clients uh, away on European trips with him. So uh, so we touch on that um, a little bit. Um, certainly we, in this first half, we're talking about indoors versus outdoors, different teaching styles, you know, how, how one goes about teaching in, in such a different environment to the one that, that most of us, I would say, is used, uh, are used to. Um, so enjoy the first half. Um, I really, really enjoyed this chat with Scott and uh, it was great to catch up with him. I haven't seen him for a, for a year or two. So um, yeah, enjoy this and I'll catch you, uh, catch you halfway through. Right, so um, Scott Clever from Inside Ski- Inside Out Skiing, uh, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Dave. Yeah, I'm really well. Good, good. Now you're sitting at home uh, in. Uh, mm, you'll have to film in, in Essex, on that. yeah, in Essex, in, Essex. in, uh, in the UK. Um, but that isn't an Essex accent, is it? <laughs> no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, so 20, uh, 29 years in Essex for me, but originally I'm from uh, from Milwaukee in, uh, in Wisconsin, the Upper Midwest, and uh, lived a long time in Texas. So. Mm. Okay. Um, and where? Um, and so, what in, initially? Well, let, let's go into that. Let's start with that. So, you were. Is that you were born and brought up there? You were sort of skiing there as a as a youngster, or? or? Um, no, absolutely not. It's pretty flat there, so I didn't actually start skiing until uh, until I moved over to Europe. Oh, um, okay. I moved over here about uh, when I was twenty eight and uh, got started in my thirties, uh, and uh, had my first lesson at forty one and uh, decided I liked it and uh, did my first Basie course uh, at forty four. So kind of a late starter. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, because that's that I've, that that to me. Well, we. Yeah, we might as well just, you know, this uh, this podcast is all about tangents, so let's jump straight into that one because I've been saying to anyone that will listen for as long as as long as possible, uh, and I say it to I say you know this isn't I'm not talking behind anyone's back. This is this is what I say to the Swiss guys and say to them, or or you know the guys that are brought up on skis. These these locals who are you know have been skiing since they were two. That's the thing that they do here in Switzerland. You're on skis by two, um, and the thing about that is that if you've skied your whole life, you have no appreciation whatsoever about what it's like to be rubbish. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, um, you know, be, being an adult learner, you know, is something that's very new. Yeah, I mean, I just uh, funny enough last week I was in uh, Intertux uh, doing a level one telemark course, and uh, you know that was uh, that was quite an experience in some heavy weather. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you go back to beginning and falling over a lot and broke a pair of skis, and uh, you know had a lot of fun. So, oh, really, it's a, yeah. I mean, yeah, and and that's I think it's a the, the the bit that follows on from that, Scott, is is that what I was thinking, is that if you've got an adult learner in front of you. How can you, if you don't know what it's like to be rubbish, 
and you've skied your whole life and it's kind of second nature to you, how can you empathise with the person that is really struggling, you know, to put pressure on one foot or, or, you know, to steer a foot this way or the other way? I'm, I'm convinced that that's what makes a lot of the kind of, I don't know, a lot of, I, I know a lot of instructors who have learnt later on and their empathy is higher in that respect. Yeah, I, I th- yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, you can definitely relate more um, to, to somebody. And I mean, I think also if you've played other sports, I think that can help quite a bit. I mean, I, I played uh, volleyball as my sport uh, when I was younger mm. and did some coaching and that. I coached women's volleyball and, and then transferring the, the coaching over to another sport, I think, gives you a different perspective as opposed to just being naturally good. You know, you've always mm. been a good skier, as you say, I've skied since I was two and how do I ski bumps? I don't know, I just go and do it. You know, so yeah. it's, a, yeah, yeah. it's a different teaching method or model than, you know, someone that's just uh, you know, learned, as, you know, learned as a youngster. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's oh, okay. The volleyball aspect uh, makes sense now because uh, for those of you who haven't met Scott, Scott's really, really tall. Um which doesn't help my skiing that much, trust me. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get on later to big guy, big guy problems, um, <clears throat> because I think that's a genuine thing. It's very hard to look dynamic as a big guy, um, yeah. you know. Uh, and I think even you see that actually on the World Cup when you look at um, uh, what's your man called Raymond Zenenhauser. You know, he's like six foot nine or something, racing slalom. Yeah, he, and he just looks crazy. Yeah, he's yeah. fast. And, you know, he doesn't have to get his legs so far away from him because, obviously, he's, he's got a very long body, but he never looks that dynamic. No. Um, but, yeah, maybe that's a tangent we'll come to, uh, come to later on. So, so what initially brought you, brought you to the UK? Uh, kind of adventure. My, uh, my wife's Irish and uh, we met and married in Texas and uh, lived there for a couple of years and came over for, uh, by American terms, uh, you know, triple lifetime, three whole weeks, you know, used up all my holiday allowance and, <laughs> and went to Paris and my wife speaks good French and uh, spent some time in, in Ireland and London and, and really loved it. You know, it was great. And we thought, well, we didn't have any kids or anything and let's come over for six months. And uh, that was 29 years ago. So oh, here we are. <laughs> that's how it goes, isn't it? I mean, I, I was, it was the same thing. I'm looking out my window here but you know if you'd have said sort of 10 years ago oh you know you'd be living out here full time and I came here for the first uh for the first time you know it's it, it's a common story in the Alps it's sort of people who have come out and never went home yeah yeah no absolutely yeah okay and and so we met I, I, we met on a uh, I'm guessing it was a Basie course I'm not sure which one and I'm not sure when um, I, I was thinking, I think it was, a, we were doing a Fortech um, in right. RBA back about five years ago. Oh my God. Yeah, I have very, very bad memories of that. I was just about, I was going through a divorce at the time and I wasn't skiing very well. I was a bit fat and uh, I failed that. I checked, <laughs> checked out of that one on the Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't, I've got no very happy memories of, of Verbier actually until this date because of that, that week. Um, and then after that, you came, once we got the ski school set up here, you came, I was short of an instructor for a week, so you, you came out for me, didn't you? And, uh, and you, you taught with the school that you knew, and, uh, and that, was, that, was, that was a really fantastic week, actually. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, been, it was great. It, was, uh, it really kind of squared a circle for me. My very, very first um, uh, job as, as a ski instructor, um, after qualifying kind of 13 years ago, was teaching uh, school kids from a local school in Essex on a dry slope here in Brentwood. Yeah. And uh, it was the exact same school group 13 years later that you had brought out, you know, for their <laughs> for their alpine trip. So that was uh, that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. 
Oh, that's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, that, and, and I really, really enjoyed that week, and I tried to get you out again this year, but you were, you know, you were bogged down with that little detail of your 30th wedding anniversary. Which yeah, kind of... my wife just about said, you know, she was going <laughs> to kill me being, being away from work that week, so I couldn't make it this year, but uh, maybe next time. But yeah, it worked out great. We And I think uh, we, we had a we had a weekend group of adults from, from my school out the week before, and it, it tied in really nicely, and I, and I don't generally get the chance to teach beginners, so it was, uh, it was a fun change for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, your your model. I mean, this is this is one of the reasons actually, Scott. That I wanted to wanted to get you on because I've interviewed various people, and a lot of you know those guys are all based out here or based out in the mountains. So we've kind of you know what what you've got is an extremely different model of teaching skiing, and I find that extremely interesting. So so you know maybe we can go down down that road. So your ski school is called Inside Out Skiing, um, and you you work most of your time indoor right in 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 the fridge yeah i'd say it's about 50 50 but yeah i mean okay. funny if i was there yesterday teaching um you know the season finished for me a couple of weeks ago and uh, now we're back into the into the snow dome at tamil Hampstead, and uh, we'll be working there up through until the winter season running running clinics for 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 fairly good uh, recreational skiers mm-hmm. that's cool okay so so for those those of you who are who don't have this weird thing that we have in the UK and Europe and and, and, and I guess there's, there must be some in China right now as well. Um, so, Hemel Hempstead used to be an outdoor slope. It used to be a dry slope, and now what they did effectively is remodel it, put a roof on it, and then they've got this kind of real snow indoor thing going on. Um, and I've skied there. I've skied there a lot. I skied also at Milton Keynes too. Um, I think I just think it's just think it's fantastic. It's a great way to access kind of real snow or or have that sensation of sort of sliding on real snow, um, which is very different to the kind of the dry slope setup. Yeah, well, it's similar in a lot of ways. Just the, the surface is is a lot better for you know it's it's more it's natural snow. It's you get some grip and uh, it's 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 like skiing outdoors. And it's very much like a, a driving range just at a golf club, you know, golf course. It's 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 not a substitute, but it's it's a great place to train in the off season and uh, keep your skills sharp. Mm, mm, okay. Um. And so your your model. So you said that you don't often do absolute beginners. So so your average inside out client comes to you with already a decent level of skill. They're what they're they're sort of progressors or improvers or whatever you want to call it or. or... Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, um, I mean, maybe going back to the beginning, I, uh, you know, my first job ever uh, as a ski instructor really came after I had done my uh, level two award and I was working towards my level three. And the first course I took was a was a race coaching module, and uh, it was quite tough. And I managed to pass that, and I was real happy about that. And the guy that uh, was examining offered me a job as a as a as his sort of assistant coaching uh, under twelves, the minis uh, up at uh, Milton Keynes, which is another snow center uh, in the in the middle of England, okay. uh, which was around before Hamel Hempstead was open. Who was that that offered you that? Uh, that was uh, Ross Green. Uh, Ross okay. Green was uh, you know quite a he was a, he's an ex uh, he's an ex Olympian. He was the uh, head of coaching. Uh, for Basie for many years and mm-hmm. uh, also uh, is a level four ISTD and I think by memory see uh, I think he said he's the only non-Austrian to complete the Austrian 
race coaching qualification so he's a oh, okay. you know, very very high-end guy and yeah. uh, you know i was absolutely delighted to you know to, to be offered a job so you mm. know i jumped in the car at five in the morning every sunday to go to race club and coach the little kids um yeah. for a couple of years and off the back of that really um i managed to get uh, offered the uh uh, the head uh, under 12s coach for Hamill when it opened up as a, as a snow dome. So uh, that then kind of gave me a little bit of street cred to approach the, the center um, and uh, a guy named Pete Gillespie, who uh, maybe it's mentioned in dispatches, I think on some of the other podcasts is, all the, of them, uh, is the, is the director of snow sports there. Yeah. And uh, very, very welcoming, very helpful. You know, they, they view the snow center as, as very much like a mountain, you know, you can rent lanes from us, you know, they allow independents to come in as long as they have, uh, uh, you know, something to offer that they don't particularly do. And, and mm. uh, the reason we don't teach beginners is uh, that's their bread and butter. So, okay. uh, you know, our, our deal with them is we're not allowed to work on the lesson slope or, or take people up until they get to sort of parallel standard uh, uh, and, and are able to ski the main slope at Hummel. So that's where we kind of kick in. I've, I've, I've written to Pete about this a couple of times because you will not believe the number of times that I have... Uh, I've had clients up here in, in wherever, in the Port Soleil or, or wherever, and they said, oh, yeah, we did some introductory lessons in in Hemel or, you know, and, and they all, you know, they come out with a decent level of ability after only a couple of hours here and there or, you know, maybe slightly more than that. But but um, what it does is, is it gives them a little head start so they get ahead on their holiday, you know, they're out here on vacation, but they can already, they've already got the moves a little bit and it means that they can progress so much quicker they you know they don't have that sort of three hour session of kind of introductory stuff and learning how to make a snowplow they've already got that and i often write to pete and say thank you your team are doing a great job down there at home. yeah i mean it's it's absolutely fantastic and funny if that was the original concept for for inside out was doing just that we were going to uh you know give people a course of lessons and then accompany them on their first ever trip to the mountains. Um, Yeah, that was, that was the original idea. And it, 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 you know, everyone that knows how to ski thought, yeah, it's brilliant. You know, you, you know, you teach them in the, in the snow dome, you, you you know, help them out with the rental equipment, you know, you make sure the lift passes are sorted and everything's all good. Um, But the people that didn't, know how to ski kind of went can i just go on holiday <laughs> so, uh, so, so it sounded good but it didn't it didn't quite go and uh we kind of changed gears in the first year or two um and, and somewhat oddly i mean i'm, I'm just a, a humble level three and, uh, and, and you know trained with a lot of level fours and, and examiners uh, but at the snow domes, um, you know, we're kind of the, the most experienced people, you know, there's the, the only a small handful of uh, level threes and fours that work um, in in the domes. And certainly mm. during the wintertime, you know, they're all off in, in the mountains working uh, full time and, and doing seasons. So uh, we kind of, in some ways, mopped, started mopping up the more experienced gears that were looking for higher end lessons. Okay. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. That is, that's really great. Um, tell me, because uh, we are going to get on later to authorizations, the way you can work and, and bits and pieces like that, because you're something of an expert on that. Um, but well, I've had to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to take your clients places, you know, that's a thing. But to set up a ski school in the UK, I, I was, it's bizarre. I've got a ski school out here, but I, don't, I wouldn't know how to go about it in the UK. What's like, how do you, how do you go about that? 
Well, yeah, it's it's, it's quite straightforward, really, because uh, unlike, uh, say, France, uh, skiing isn't a regulated profession in the UK. So uh, technically, anyone can, can set up a ski school. You just set up a limited company and, and uh, you offer ski lessons. Hmm. You do need to, to have some qualifications to really get some liability insurance so you know just any joe off the street can't can't uh, can't set up a ski school and teach teach gain okay. um you know if there was a problem you need to have professional liability insurance and that sort of thing so you know with a with a Bayesian license or, or an iac license uh, there, there's really no stopping anyone setting up a ski school and uh, taking people out um whether that be in the scottish mountains or or potentially working in the snow domes now that's very Certainly, different to how we it... operate in the snow dome we yeah. you know it's their it's their facility and uh, we need to abide by their rules they they have insurance uh, issues that they got to contend with mm. and we need to show that we've got all our paperwork in order and uh, CRB checks and uh, first aid licenses and all that sort of stuff and and Pete very graciously allows us to work there uh, as an external uh, as a licensed external instructor so they've got a small handful of people that um, do things similar to us that uh, they bring in and uh, we're kind of more the niche offering and you know people can get lessons you know at a, at a more advanced stage than they would offer through their ski school mm-hmm. oh well okay so does it so it's not really so I'm, my my equivalent knowledge is is that of switzerland so you have to have a you have to have reached the highest level in their certification system before you can set up a ski school here and you have to attend a director's course as well, which is which is you know, a couple of days in a in a classroom or whatever. But um, yeah, but but in the UK, actually, the access to the market is much easier as long as you can come to a deal with with the places that that you could teach. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know, there's quite a few, you know, not necessarily ski schools per se, you know, where they've got a, a big structure and they they, they run groups like we do uh you know it could be an independent you might be a level three you might be a i don't know freestyle coach for instance there's a few guys doing that uh, or a snowboard coach uh so there might be more as independent operators as opposed to a ski school Mm. Mm. okay all right and so so then so so you're not allowed to pick up well not allowed the the agreement is that you don't you don't teach beginners on the beginner slope so so you're so then you're you're your people find you these sort of you know coming to parallel skiers who are on the big slope they they come and find you or do you, do you sort of you advertise presumably but but do you get sort of referred on also from from Hemel or yeah we, it, we, it, it comes from a range of, of sources I mean really when we started um, a lot of the business came from uh, because I was working as a race coach it was a lot of the parents you know uh, oh. we, you know teach the parents uh, in the evening uh, or outside the race club um quite you know generally quite a good standard of skier uh, you know see how the kids progress and uh think well maybe we can do something similar so we kind of modeled the ski school uh, around uh, almost in some ways like a recreational club i mean Mm. the reason these kids get good even on from the dry slopes or the snow domes is you know they go regularly they go two hours a week uh 40 weeks a year maybe and that's a lot of training you know then they go out in the mountains for a week and and they're really ripping so Mm. uh, you know they don't get good by going around poles they get good by you know through regular periodized training we really focus on skills with the little ones and then we take them in the gates when they're a little bit older and stronger mm. and it got me thinking you know it's the, the same should hold for for, for adults as, as you said you know if you come to the sport later in life um, there's no difference in starting at seven or starting at, at 50 you know it, you know we go through the same same progression of skills 
And so we set up kind of like a, uh, a race club for recreational adults. So in the sense that we offer like each month we have a different focus and, you know, the clinic might be um, on skills for moguls or skills for carving, that sort of thing. Mm. And so we try to keep it fresh and, and uh, not just do the same thing over and over with people. And, you know, they start coming more regularly, they, 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 they get better and, uh, and they move onwards. And then when we take them out to the mountains, uh, it's a different uh, situation. So we were able to use, you know, the terrain and, you know, we might offer classes on uh, or week courses on carving skills or it might be all mountain introductions. Uh, we did uh, an intro to skinning this year. So that sort of thing. So we can we keep it, try to keep it fresh when we uh, when we go into the mountains. But uh, certainly indoors, it's uh, it's very much modeled on a, on a periodized training program that we use with the, with the race club kids. Mm-hmm. So we... Oh, oh, well, let's well let's touch on that then. So, so we've got you've also got the the, the second part of your business model. So you've got this sort of uh, adults club. Um, you don't still do the the racing with the kids, do you? Uh, I, I left it two years ago. So I did, did about eight years, mm. and I, I, as the business grew for Inside Out, I was, I was finding myself really away pretty much most of the winter. I was mm. doing uh, doing race training for for. Uh, trying to achieve my Euro test. And mm. uh, so I was out pretty much from November to, to April. And, uh, you know, I'd get back and I, I did about 80, 80 to 100, uh, under 12s and, and four coaching groups. And all the kids would have been all spread out and did the wrong groups because they wanted to be with their mates and no one was following the program. And then I just kind of felt like I was a substitute teacher as opposed to the, you know, the kid to know them. So I, I yeah, just didn't yeah. feel I was giving it my best go. So I, uh, I bowed out uh, two years ago, but I'm still, I'm still keen. I might, I might have another crack at it. I'm thinking about it. Okay. All right, but so 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 that was a bit of a tangent. So this the 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 other part of your business is is uh, is the trips kind of element to it, similar to what we were talking about with Phil Smith, and I think you know Warren was doing this a little bit as well. Um, in terms of your your you know your market trips to your clients, and some of them that you came up with are absolutely brilliant. You go all over the place. Um, yeah, I mean, and- I mean, it kind of that. that- that's that's the other side you know there's inside and there's out and uh, really we set the school up okay. to get you know to get to develop a client base was was very much working with people at, at the snow center and you know the long-term intention when we first started it we did one week you know we did a first week to uh, sold in in austria then we built it up to two and uh, last year i think it did uh, nine weeks so oh, wow. you know we've got yeah the, the client base is you know, you know evolved and gotten a bit bigger so we're able to put more trips on and when we first started um uh, you know, when we wanted to kind of do similar to like what Innerski does in AOSTA, you know, mm. just get people to come out um, on, on a part-time basis. I mean, at that point, I was I was working full-time. I, I was just, uh, I was hopeful to get a couple of weeks in the mountains teaching. And I didn't particularly want to work for someone else. I mean, I've always had my own businesses and stuff. So I'd, uh, mm. I wanted to set up a, a structure that would allow me to do that. And uh and this is what we came up with. So we uh, we very much only work with adults. We don't work with uh, families, and we pick the kind of lowest season, cheapest weeks, um, and then kind of bolt on the coaching package um, as part of the holiday. Mm. Okay. So we, I mean, we obviously we, you know, it's nice to have a local fixer as well because obviously you took one of the weeks to uh, to Morjan, um, yeah, which we kind of yeah. you know hooked you up with some accommodation providers. I'm sure you know people all over the Alps, but so so as, where. Where did you go last year for these these nine weeks? Give us a few names. Uh, well, yeah. First, uh, we start off in Teen uh, on the glacier there in, in November. We do a kind of four day uh, preseason tune up um, for 
for people that just want to kind of kickstart the season mm-hmm. and then move over to Maribel for the very first opening week there where it's uh, just deadly quiet but and cheap and uh, <laughs> the ski is really good generally the snow is excellent so we do that one um, then in January back to Maribel working with uh, a partner ski school out there a guy named uh, Derek Chandler who runs Ski Marmalade he's a Bayes examiner and uh, mm-hmm. I think 20 seasons in Maribel so he looks after sort of the more off-piste elements for us so we do a, an off piece intro for mm-hmm. people that are kind of just dipping their toes uh, off the sides of the of the piece and want to expand their their you know their skill base and, and do that um then where did we go we went to a uh, becara uh, last year okay which uh, was lovely i mean we 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 tried it every two years to put on a uh, kind of an unusual trip uh, we call them hidden gems so mm. this uh, last year was becara the two years before that was ruka in finland which is a really Interesting, cool place to go skiing if you've never I'm, been. I'm quite ignorant of where Bikera Barret is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's in the Pyrenees. It's sort of uh, west of Andorra, so it's uh, kind of up Barcelona way. If you go, it, is you it know, Spanish? Below, just below Toulouse. It's Spanish. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's oh, wow. it's very very Catalan. Um, yeah. but uh, you know, Spanish yeah. is the main language. Yeah. Okay. Oh wow, that's cool. That is a hidden gem. Yeah, and uh, so much so, you know, we're putting that one on a program uh, on a permanent basis. So we're going back there uh, for two weeks this, this coming season. Um, I've heard a lot bit... about Andorra and oh, Pyrenean skiing. There's a there's a podcast, another podcast called Ski the Ski Podcast, and uh, a few of those guys go there all the time. Um, they absolutely rave about it. I'm I'm determined to get down there at some point because uh, because it sounds like it's. It's just the kind of it's well to me. It sounds like the sort of ski stations that I absolutely love. You know, like small, friendly, not not these sort of mega resorts. Um, that's kind of that's the direction that I'm going when I'm trying to visit places these days. Yeah, it's like that, but it's actually surprisingly a bigger uh, bigger ski domain than you think. Oh, yeah. uh, it doesn't look it on paper, but it's uh, quite a sizable resort with uh, a lot of great sort of lift served off piece skiing. Mm. Okay. Um, where else? What else is on your menu? Uh, yeah, then we were over in uh, Madonna di Campio in, in Italy for uh, for a kind of a carving clinic. They, they, they don't have as much off-piece there, but it's uh, just immaculately groomed piece, so it's a real good spot there. Yeah. Um, and uh, where else do we go? I went to Hintertux uh, for, for a trip, and, uh, and that was about it. Uh, you just come back from Tux, right? Yeah, that wasn't that was actually a Bayesian course for me, as oh. opposed to with clients, so, yeah. Ah. How was the telemarketing, by the way? Uh, it was enjoyable. We had some pretty rippy weather, so it was uh, trying to learn telemarketing. Forty and fifty mile an hour winds was was uh, challenging. Let's put it that way. So it's challenging <laughs> but, uh, enough to learn telemarketing. Uh, pass, so that was happy. Oh well, good for you. Good for you. It's um, <laughs> it's something that I I do. I just don't do it enough. You know, I went out with. Um, do you know Joe Beer? Um, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah sure. so I went out with Joe um, just to kind of tune up my telemark thing and I had a very 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 ple- I'm planning to get him on the podcast actually because he's got yeah he's just completely uh, uh, he has a completely different view on everything and um, and yeah I'm very much well I really enjoyed that that sort of three hours that I, I was telemarking around with him a nice lunch after and uh, it was good just to catch up with him actually but um, but now he gave me a few tips that kind of really really made the telemark work again for me which was fantastic um, I, I really enjoy doing it. I just don't get enough time to do it. That's, uh, that's yeah, I was the same boat. And I, I, I was going to do that as my second discipline, God, 12 mm. years ago, and uh, I never got around to it. And 
did a little bit here and there, but yeah, you I mean you do a full week with a with a with a with a proper instructor and maybe yeah. make some progress. So, so what do you know? Huh? Well, how how are your thighs after that week? Uh, yeah, not too bad, but uh, not, not not great. <laughs> You'll be walking weird for a week. Okay, cool. Um, all right, so those trips then. I mean, so so they the the trip sort of client base is drawn from your sort of club setup. So within within your database, you know, you'll market those things to those people and then, you know, whoever comes, comes, right? I mean, how many people yeah. are you getting on these, these trips roughly? Um, well, I mean, we've got, I mean, we've got about, so I think we've got about 900 clients now uh, that oh, we've right. taught indoors cool. and uh, probably, you know, over half of those are, are repeat people that, uh, you know, mm. have come more than once and, uh, and we've got quite a few regulars that, uh, you have done say five or ten sessions with this indoors so yeah. that's kind of the main pool for the alpine trips and yeah. then sometimes we'll get you know we'll, we'll get people that have trained with us indoors and they might bring their other half or the you know uh, friends friends and stuff like that so it's not necessarily people we trained indoors but mm. primarily yeah so yeah we've got you know got a couple hundred people that uh, that are fairly regular alpine clients with us and uh, you know some will come one two three trips a year um but pretty much for us it's we're the we're the second trip you know we're the we're the we're the, we work with people that are you know keen enthusiastic recreational skiers and and you know generally they're the best of their mates uh, and they want to yeah. they want a four-day or a you know six-day course to to tune up and just get that bit better so um and it's it's quite social we get a lot of people coming on their own uh, and you know they get to know each other at, at hamill at the snow dome you know they go on holiday it's not it's not a big drama they're sharing a chalet and uh, it's yeah. all it's all fun time oh good that's really cool that's really really cool I, I i like that and i really like that variety you know i think that's a, that's an important thing I, I i do feel sorry sometimes for for a lot of these guys who are teaching in the same resort they're just skiing the same pieces over and over and over. It doesn't really have a great deal of opportunity to kind of explore new stuff. But when, you know, that's that's why I set up, set up our ski school the way I've set it up. So we get to ski in different resorts all the time. Um, but uh, but I think when you can yeah. kind of make those trips to different places, it's, it just makes it a little bit more interesting, doesn't it? And the same old... Yeah, same old com- completely. And, and, you know, when we set it up... Uh at the time you know my daughter was still at home i wasn't able to to, to go out as much as i would do you know mm-hmm. i just wasn't in a position to to do seasons or base myself in the alps and so this is the model we came up with and uh no my, my daughter's slow in the nest and uh i can do a little bit more in the mountains uh, i decide to rather than base myself in one resort just to, to move around it and also keep it fresh for the clients you know we you know people we, we go to the same resorts they do get a bit fatigued you know people have done it been there done that a little bit done some of the some of the trips so we, we try to move around a, a bit just to keep it all fresh mm-hmm. your daughter's flown in the nest i'm like 16 years behind you i don't know i can't even imagine <laughs> yeah 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 exactly um all right so let me i'm just going to flip back to the indoor experience because i think this is this is quite an interesting one which will be to be really interesting for for all of the people that are kind of you know typically teaching outdoor but you know my thought bubble here says what's it like you know like because the, the turnaround is quite quick typically the slope is i don't know what 150 200 meters long like it's not very big. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing you get a lot of repetition in, but like, what what are the main differences from that and sort of general alpine teaching? Well, yeah, very different. I mean, I listened to Phil Smith's um, podcast with yourself, and, and mm. he, Phil talks a lot about you know skiing and it's very much in an open environment, and and I couldn't agree more. But 
when we're training on say dry slopes or or uh, or indoor snow domes it it becomes more of a closed environment you know it's yeah, as right. i said the, the analogy i use is very much the driving range as opposed to being out in the open golf course and because it's so consistent and you can actually work much better on, on skills development with people you know you're running laps on a, on a consistent slope you can get them to really practice and hone in on, on developing those skills and movement patterns that we're trying to do mm, mm. okay and uh, how long is a sort of typical lap in uh, how long are the sessions that you do um it varies we 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 we, we run a range of clinics the the the, the we do half-day clinics for what we call improvers, which are people that are just kind of getting into parallel standard mm-hmm. and typically maybe a little bit more nervous uh, or earlier stage gears. We, we limit those to four people group sizes and do half-day sessions on that. And the rest of the clinics are typically full-day, um, 10 to 4 type of thing, hour and a half sessions on the slope. It gets quite cold in there because the, uh, it it's it? minus 6 in, in, in the freezer. But the floor is actually held at minus 16. So you actually get cold feet in there much more than you do in a mountain. So, well, plus uh, you haven't got any solar, solar Yeah, you don't have any solar radiation either. So you're kind of, you, you don't get warm, I guess. You know, no, you, you get cold in there. So, yeah. um, you know, we typically, like I said, do about an hour and a half and we do a lot of video review. So uh, yeah. that because the slope is quite consistent, we do laps. Uh, there's probably more feedback than you would do, use uh, in a mountain environment mm. and uh, much more extensive use of video feedback. And the, the type of people that want to, you know, learn how to ski or, or get better at skiing in, in August in a snow dome are, are, are pretty keen, enthusiastic people and generally are quite technical in the way they like to learn. Yeah. Um, you, you know, we find that they, they're, they're, they're more sort of students of the game. So they want, they want to, they, they, they generally seek more feedback than, than just a normal ski school group that you'd get out on a holiday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, no, I can see that. I mean, I often say to our, our clients, once they get, or kids especially, but once we get off of the the beginner slopes, I'm often saying to them, you know, look, the, the reason that skiing was originally invented, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just going up and down slopes for pleasure. It was to get from place to place. And that's part of what we're doing here. You know, so we're, we're learning how to ski, but, but also we're trying to get to that restaurant over there. Or we're trying to, you know, get down to that lift or we're trying to travel. And that's you know we lose in a typical kind of i don't know half day lesson or something you lose a bunch of time on lifts um you know lift rides you know 10 minute lift rides or or you know traveling from one spot to the other so you can do some teaching in the spot that you want to teach you know there's there's a lot of kind of moving about which i guess you don't get indoors you know it must be quite yeah, intense for it, you it, too as the teacher yeah it, it is uh it's more condensed you know it, it, as you say it's uh you know, a two hour session, say, or an hour and a half, you know, they're spinning laps, you know, we can, we can actually just park ourselves middle of the slope, give them some feedback as they pass by on the, on the pommel lift. And uh, they're getting a lot of skiing in. Um, and it generally can be, we try to be slow people down quite a bit and, and be more precise in their skiing. Um, rather than just hooning down, you know, the slope and, and, and wasting a, wasting a run, they're, they're more focused on, uh, on what we're trying to work on. And there's probably a much, much bigger use of drills for skills, uh, indoors. You know, there's just not a lot of point just making 14 solemn turns and turning around doing it again. It's, uh, more productive to, to, to try to isolate some, some skills that need working on and, uh, apply drills accordingly. Mm, mm, no, I can see that. I can, I can see that. That's, uh. Okay. Oh, well, that's that's covered off a lot of stuff. 
Is that? I mean, what, uh, do the, do the, is it is it crowded indoors? Uh, it can be in the wintertime. I mean, I was there yesterday and it was uh, it was dead. You know, there's maybe 10 people in there. So in the off seasons, it's a fantastic place to, to train. You know, we get into the get into the school holiday periods in the wintertime and it's uh, it, it's just too busy to run group clinics. So from November to April, we actually just do private lessons. That's that's all we do. It just gets too too busy and too crowded to do mm. effective teaching on a, on a group basis. So but now we kind of kick into our off season time and. and uh, running a group clinics and, and it works great. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a great place to train. And, uh, as you say, it's, it's very focused on, on, on learning. So you have to be uh, probably another difference is you have to be a lot more creative. I think indoors, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. running laps all day from uh, an indoor snow dome can get boring very, very quickly. So mm-hmm. you, you need to kind of keep people entertained as well as challenged, uh, and, and, and focusing on their, on their improvements. Otherwise it gets boring real quick. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. You know, and yeah. if it's not quite going your way, or people are getting frustrated, you can't just take the opportunity to, you know, look up at the sun and say, "Let's let's let's just shoot over here for this nice piece of powder." <laughs> we don't have that <laughs> opportunity, sadly. It doesn't work. What what do you do when that comes up? Because I can imagine that people do get afraid. You you just thought you go upstairs for a coffee or something, or, or... yeah, I mean, we we try to you know generally because they're in a group situation, we we typically do like an hour and a half uh blocks on, on the slope and then break for coffee or lunch uh and and then do video review in between and then you know it's just keeping it fresh and keeping people interested um and, that, and that's a skill on its own you know it's because uh, we have quite you know it's a tight group you know so you just don't string out and do a lot of follow me it's it's mm-hmm. uh, you know meet at the top meet at the bottom you know maybe work in pairs uh, do some group things but uh, you, you have to you have to keep juggling it about to keep it interesting and, and, and very much to keep people coming back. You know, I've got people that have done, you know, uh, 10 or 20 lessons with me. And, and if you're not keeping it fresh, they're, they're not going to be coming back. Mm. Well, this is this is something that I did notice. Notice your style was very, very different as a ski teacher when you came out and you, you helped me out with that, that, that school group that week. You know, the kind of there was the your approach was much, much more focused on lap coaching and getting <clears throat> real improvements out of these guys, um, you know, straight away. And it's, it's not a criticism at all. I'm just saying it was it was different. It's just noticeable that it was different. Um, whereas kind of I think the guys who are out in a sort of more of an alpine environment all of the time are kind of more used to just letting, maybe letting some time pass by doing stuff that isn't, you know, focused on you must get better straight away all the time. Um, I thought that was, it was one of my biggest things that I noticed, you know, in terms of your style versus kind of, you know, the rest of my guy's style. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's something I'm very conscious of. I mean, it's, uh, it, I have to, and, and in some ways that you got to be really careful that you just don't treat the mountains like an, a big snow dome, you know, mm. and because we are very focused on, on drills for skills indoors. And when I go out, I have to, I have to really tone that down, you know, making sure that we're not just doing drills all day long. We're actually using the terrain. Uh, we're working in an open environment and, and using the terrain to challenge people as opposed to drill sets. So mm. that's something I'm very conscious of what I'm teaching that uh, I don't end up coaching like I do in, the, in, in a dome after, after a long summer. Well, yeah. Cause I guess you must have to, yeah, you, you, there is a period of ad- adaptation, right. For you where you sort of, you know, right, okay, we're in a much bigger, you know, the terrain is more limitless here. You know, we, we, we can actually just go and spend some time just skiing. Uh, rather yeah, than, definitely. <laughs> you know, and, you know, that's, just keeping that in focus. And it, 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 it sounds silly, but it's it, it's something that you need, need to be conscious of when, when we're teaching in both environments. 
Yeah, I think it's mega important. Often I'll just I'll just put a pause on the lesson and I'll say to my clients, look, you know, snow's great here, let's just ski, right? We just Yeah. Um, yeah, for because, sure. I mean, you know, you you know mileage and laps is, you know, yeah. I'm sorry, mileage and, you know, using different terrain is where, where you really consolidate all that learning that we right. spent all that hard work in the, in, in the domes doing funny drills. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. hope you're enjoying uh, my chat uh, that I had with Scott. Um, I really, really enjoyed uh, listening to him about the uh, uh, the differences of skiing indoors and outdoors, um, and how he goes about you know keeping it interesting for his clients on such a quick turnaround on those indoor slopes. Um, for those of you that don't know or haven't skied on them, I mean the slope is only what 150, 200 meters long. But the laps are very, very quick, so it can be very, very intense in there. Um, and cold, uh, if I remember rightly, from from my time skiing um, back in the UK. In part two, part two we talk about um, skiing in Europe, so the trips that Scott goes away on. Um, and we talk about, actually it gets quite, I wouldn't say dry, but there's some interesting stuff in there about the, um, the rules and regulations in different European countries. Um, and then uh, once we cover all of that off, we, we talk about a little, little tangent about big guy skiing. So... Uh, um, maybe of interest for all of those of you six foot and above. So uh, enjoy the second half, and um, I've got a few really cool interviews coming up. Uh, I'm just trying in the process of organising to meet people now, um, but uh, but for now enjoy the second part of this, and uh, and for all of those of you who have been teaching all winter, I, I hope you had a really really good one. Um, see you soon. Bye. So, look, this talking of outdoors because this leads me nicely on to to some of these other points that, that I think we should cover. Is how am I going to get down this road? So, when you're doing trips, you've just said to me, okay, that you've been to places like uh, Austria, Italy, France, and Spain. Now, the and. The guys who are listening from, say, the US or Canada, you may not be familiar with this, and, and indeed some of the others may not be, um, or, or indeed other places. But in Europe, there are very, apparently, there are very, very specific rules to who can and cannot teach in Europe. And this is the reason why we have this thing called the Eurotest, and this is the reason why um, people spending all this money to try and get through to level four STD or the, you know, their country's equivalent to have the right to teach in these countries now that's not necessarily the case is it scott no it isn't and there, you know there is uh there's a lot of dogma in, in in ski instruction there's you know people just assume that because things have been always been done a certain way that that's the way only way that you can do things um 
you know, my my first ever gig in the mountains was uh, was working uh, for uh, for Ross for the for the race club at uh, the British Champs in Maribel. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm thinking at the time, you know, I'm a fresh ski instructor. Um, I had a coaching license, uh, and I was came out as a as a club coach working mm-hmm. working for Ross. And you know, I'm, I'm asking, you know, is this all okay? I'm, I'm expected to get the handcuffs slapped on me at any time. You know, <laughs> and this is this cool? You know, and uh, he said, no, 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 it's a, it's a whole different uh, whole different setup if you work for a, as a club coach as opposed to a, a, under an instructor license. So. Um, that was one way when, in, in certain territories that we work. We work. We actually have a club that's um, set up and affiliated with uh, Snow Sport England. Um, it, and clubs don't necessarily have to be race clubs. You know, there's the there's the Metropolitan Police Ski Club. There's the you know BA Pilot Ski Club, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, you can be a recreational ski club. Mm. and work with your with your club members uh, as a club coach um as long as you fully you know you fly in and, and go out with them um you're not touting for business locally um and you're not allowed to teach beginners so you're only allowed to teach club members that are you have an ongoing coaching relationship with mm-hmm. and that works really well in places that recognize that and are used to that you know maribel being a good example or teen where there's a whole lot of clubs come out you know use the glacier to train on um they're not all istds they're not, they're not all past their euro tests some are you know ex-world cup skiers that never got an instructor qualification but are, are, are have coaching licenses so that's one way we work um and that's very much dependent on the the valley really we're working in what they're used to Right. So, so in in France, we work on that. Um, in other areas, we utilize the European legislation um, and European directives to to work under the freedom of movement. You know, we, uh, you know, in in Europe at the moment, uh, you know, Brits are allowed to, uh, or European citizens are allowed to work uh, anywhere in other countries. Now, skiing is quite complicated in a lot of ways. Um, this can get to be fairly dry and on how, how it actually works. But uh, you know, you talked mm-hmm. to, you talked about the Euro test, and um, and I, I was listening to Phil Smith uh, talking about some of the history and how they set up. You know, they they yeah. challenged uh, the the local French laws uh, when he went and set up in France by utilizing European legislation, which kind of overrides. Um, uh, all the all the respective nations uh, working rights laws. So, you know, the what ended up happening um, was probably in back in two thousand uh, they concocted the the Euro test and the European Mountain Security um, off piece test as a uh, as a, as a test for any nation to compare their top level uh, awards to, mm-hmm. so you know a, a French or a Italian ex racer can't look down their nose at a, uh, at a Brit or a Dutch guy that's uh, that's managed to pass his Euro test in EMS. So yeah. that that kind of leveled the playing field for for people at the at the at the, at the top level. But that's um, that's only one side of the coin. Uh, there's two ways to work in Europe. One is um, is that way, which is uh, known as the right of establishment. So um, mm. y- if you want to set up uh, as a as a local, say in France uh, or Italy, if you uh, achieve that that high, highest level, you are allowed to to set up and talk for business, uh, and do just what a local will do. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side of the coin is something that most people don't know uh, in, in Basie, certainly, is part of that same legislation is is something called uh, the freedom to provide services, uh, provision of services. So yeah. if you want to, just want to go on a temporary basis um, and apply your trade, whether that's a you know, software engineer or a ski instructor, 
as long as you're coming out with groups from your home country mm-hmm. and uh, you are legal to do what you would do in your home country, mm-hmm. you can do that in a, in a European country by declaring your intention to work um, for a temporary period. So, uh, you know, what we do is we're not allowed to set up in, in competition with the people that have gone through all that hard work to, to get their ISTD, which gives them the hard fought right to uh, to set up and compete against the locals on a, on a level playing field. Yeah, We bring people in uh, and, and it works just fine. Um, you know, each country has slightly different uh, paperwork to fill out, but the, the basics are that you need to declare a certain week, uh, you know, or, or two or three or whatever you want to work. Typically, it's up to four weeks in, in an individual country. Mm-hmm. Um, let them know you have to provide them with a proof of liability insurance, that your licenses are up to date, you've got a criminal records check and a first aid certificate. And yeah. uh, you send that paperwork in and uh, if you don't hear back from them in uh, 30 days, typically, you're good to go. Um and some countries are a little bit more progressive. They actually give you a piece of paper. In Italy, for instance, you get a you get a license uh, and uh, and a badge to wear, so that they know that you've uh, you've complied with the legislation and are doing the right thing. Yeah, that's right. No, I've seen that. <clears throat> I've seen that. But uh, yeah, but in terms of France, if that 30, 30 days thing just passes, then that's that's okay, right? Yeah, you're, you're you're good to go. But you know that not having a piece of paper kind of makes you feel a bit naked. You know, you, you, you can't, we we tend to carry. I carry my you know, my declaration paper. Um, I actually submit that by registered post. Um, yeah. And it, it, you know, if we don't, it, basically, the European laws is because they don't want to have it set up where you have to every time you want to travel to work, whether that be a ski district or any other profession. Um, too much red tape so they just have the system where you just declare and unless you are rejected you are good to go yeah um in france i tend you know i do that but also belt and braces i work under the club construct because that's more recognized and and, and known you know so mm. under the club we we have to give them a, provide them a list of the club members their membership numbers um and where and how long we're intending to teach uh, or coach, I should say, mm. and and that works just fine. You know, we, 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 in, in team, they, we we notify the lift company that they come back and ask us, you know, if they can help with lift passes or accommodation, and it's all very friendly. And mm. I think touching on what you know, Phil and maybe yourself have said is, you know, you just need to work with people and and let them know what you're doing. Uh, yeah. You know, we we never turn up unannounced. You know, if we go to a new resort. Uh, uh, fin- um, just spoke or touched on Finland. I, I didn't really have a really detailed clue as to what the what the what the regulations were there. So you know, we contacted the head of the Finnish Ski Inspector Association. He met us on our first day and notified all the ski school guys, and they were delighted that was. You know, we had twenty odd people from the UK in a little mm-hmm. resort in Finland, and uh, everybody was happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and this is, I think this is quite an important thing, isn't it? Because it's important, I think, that that people's eyes are open to the, the, the fact that there isn't only one way of doing this. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's slightly unusual in the sense that we're, you know, we're based in the UK and we, we, we import our clients and ski instructors from, from another country. So I'm not looking to, to compete or step on anybody's toes locally. And, but on mm-hmm. the same token, I, you know, when I say I go to team, we, we wear our ski school uniforms with pride. Anyone ask any questions, um, happy to explain how we do things. Mm-hmm. No, rightly so. Right, so and that's that. Uh, that is also an important thing. I think this sort of concept of the ownership of the clients is who, and where are your clients coming from? Um, yeah, that is. I think if you go into <clears throat> into another country and those, you know, those 
those are sort of local clients, I think that's when it becomes a bit of an issue. But if the clients are yours, um, as long as you have those declarations in place, I don't think it's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our first, I can remember vividly our first time in Italy, um, you know, in, in a new resort, we tried this and uh, it, it, just out of courtesy, we thought, well, well, we'll, we'll set up a meeting with the local ski school director and uh, we popped into the office and a bunch of gnarly ex-racers hanging out and they said, oh, you're the club from England, you know, fantastic. I've got, uh, I've got a fax here from, from Rome, you know, <laughs> it's really cool that you guys have followed the rules, you know, and anything we can do for you. And if you want any gates set up, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to help. So oh, yeah, again, just, you know, just being upfront with people and uh, trying to, and some of those, maybe the smaller resorts, you know, they're, they're delighted to get people in from, from different nationalities and, uh, it all works if we just uh, all work together. Well, I think you're right. And also there is an aspect, you're right, there is a very large aspect, a tourism aspect to this, right? You know, if you've got people that are wanting to bring clients to your resort, you'd be foolish to say no to that, I think. You know, anything that brings 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 funds to the Alps for the, the local businesses, the restaurants or whatever, it's, it's um Yeah, it, 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 it works. And, and one of the, the other things probably worth mentioning is that the temporary provision of services, it's not like a, a defined number of days or weeks. It's it, They keep it open and flexible so that they can bring in people from the outside and, and turn the tap down if they want to. Mm. A, a really good example is uh, in Madonna where we go. Um, it, it, over the last couple of years, um, for whatever reason, uh, a lot of Polish people are coming in, mm. uh, doing very much what we do. You know, they bring coach loads of people in, they bring their own instructors. And uh, it's great for, for, for local businesses, but it's actually gotten so busy that the, the local ski schools have suffered a little bit. So what they've done there is they've just said, rather than being able to work um, for seven weeks a year, which is what it used to be, they've, they've toned the tap down two weeks. So, you know, that's affected us in the sense that we can only run two weeks in that particular region yeah. uh, every season, which which is fine. But it's, you know, it, it all works um, for, for, for everybody involved. So it's a, it's fluid, but uh, you just need to keep your uh, keep abreast of what's going on. Mm, okay, okay. Oh, that's that's super interesting. I, 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 like I say, I'm, I'm not really au fait with... Uh, with how it works in other countries, we, we obviously have a proximity to France here, so we kind of this is of, of particular importance to us. But, um, and in fact, I think there was an email sent around to all the Swiss ski schools about this whole declaration issue um, at the start of this season. Um, but the, the, yeah, as for other countries, I didn't know that. I don't know. Do you still have to make a declaration for Finland, for example? Um, we didn't. Uh, in the end, it was just... It, 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 the, by speaking to the head of the the, the, the instructor association, you said uh, we're so small we don't really worry about it. Quite frankly, <laughs> so yeah, it was. Uh, and in Spain, um, they were pretty relaxed as well. They, uh, you know, they very much said uh, you can do that. But it, we we spoke to the head of the tourism for that valley. Yeah. They check with the with their with their government officials and said as long as you're, we we view as a club coming in and out, so uh, it's absolutely fine. So mm-hmm. you know, each place kind of has either a strict or a non-strict interpretation of of the legislation. But the key thing is that, you know, there are European directives that uh, that sit over the top of all, all the national legislation. And mm. as long as you're following that, you're generally in good shape. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the reason we found out about this, uh, you know, I, I was trying to figure out a way to work. We had the club construct, but I, you know, went, you know, got my level three and I was uh, looking at the Euro test training and, and doing that. And, mm. And 
when I read the actual Eurotest agreement, <laughs> it actually states all this quite clearly. Um, but it's not someone that people refer to too often. So certainly in Bayesian, they just assume that you have to go through and get your level four before you can set foot into the hallowed ground of France to work. Well, I think this is quite an important thing. And, it, and it, like you say, it's, it's dogma. It is, you know, a lot of people have been told that this is the way that these things are supposed to be done. When in yeah. fact, when you do take the time to read the legislation, when you do take the time to, to kind of look into it, actually, that's not the only way. And, um, and like you say, you're you're living proof of it, right? You know, it's yeah. you're out there, you're in France, you're um, teaching people perfectly legally. For um, sure. I mean, and again, on, on a really good example of that, I mean, is that uh, France and Italy um, have a single tier of, of ski instructor. You know, they have trainees and then they have you know, qualified and that's it. So there's one level. Mm. Yet in Italy, you know, on the other side of Mont Blanc, um, you've got Brits working quite happily in Aosta for Interski. You know, pretty much most people I know that's come through Bayes have done a couple of weeks with Interski while they're doing their level two mm -hmm. and maybe working towards the level three. And it works just fine uh, because they apply the, the European directives uh, correctly um, and, or, or in a more known way, uh, whereas in France, they maybe try to keep that under the under the carpet a little bit so to keep people out in some ways rather than uh, welcoming them in. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and I think actually the Brits that, that, that maybe know about this or, or maybe they don't, um, but they're certainly, you know, they're complicit within that, um, which I think is, is, is an important thing to note you know it's it's um almost it looks like they're sort of acting as a gatekeeper for this kind of knowledge um but in fact you know there's a lot of people out there spending money on Eurotest stuff but they, maybe they don't need to it's um, well yeah and it's, it's kind of frustrating at times but um you know it's uh, again interesting to listen to jazz lamb who uh you know ski with jazz i know really well mm. and he was sort of saying how the port of soleil because it borders uh switzerland a lot of people train and, and work on the swiss side and then once they're qualified they, they jump over to the french side and set up an independent ski school and he was talking about sort of maybe a little bit more market saturation for for british instructors mm. and but then at the same and, and the next sentence said uh, you know we're absolutely rammed at the, you know, the 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 holiday periods the feb half term the easter and that and you know we could sell the lessons ten times over and i'm thinking well it, you know if we could apply the european directives correctly we could get level threes you know filling those those short-term uh mm. gaps and and <laughs> doing a few weeks training while they're learning mm. and everyone would win you know but uh that's a that's a battle for Bayesi to fight i think <laughs> Yeah, well, assuming they want to fight it, right? But the the yeah, yeah um, but it also applies in the uh, the same way. This is a quite an important thing, I think, probably to to realise. And there are a number of kind of uh, domains here in Europe that 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 span two different countries. It's you know the Port de Soleil is a great example. It's French and 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 uh, and Swiss. And there's an informal agreement here, you know, that that, that you know people can come and go in between the two countries. Um, but actually, the you know we we see it all the time. You know, all these French instructors are over on the Swiss side. The Swiss side is lovely and quiet, even at half term. You know, there's not too many people around. It's absolutely mobbed with French instructors teaching their client on in somewhere like Le Crozet, for example. But actually, if you applied the letter of the law, those guys are teaching illegally in the Canton Valley in Switzerland. So they don't have yeah, the right of the reservation. They don't hold the patent. Yeah. They don't hold the they don't hold the brevet or anything like that. You know, they don't have the right tickets and it applies also when the Swiss guys go over onto the French side, you know, but, but that's just part of it. And I imagine they have the same issue in Zermatt, you know, Zermatt, Chivinia, 
Um, yeah. You know, where I imagine Swiss guys go over into Italy, they probably don't get bothered that much. Um, so there has to be a certain amount of flexibility in those regions. Um, uh, you know, if, if you were to rock up, I think, into the middle of, say, Mejev or something, you know, and started teaching there as a Swiss guy or an or a Italian guy, that would be a completely different, different, different kettle of fish. But in yeah. certain, there are certain grey areas here in the Alps that 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 that, um, that are affected by all these kind of things. Yeah, and I think you know a lot of times you know what we do, and uh, people look at us like we're exploiting loopholes or something like that. And it's, it's really not the case. It's it's no. very much you know we're just we're following the rules. And uh, you know places like uh, Aosta or Trentino, they're they're not odd odd loopholes. They're they're just applying the the directives correctly. Um, mm. And 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 are welcoming you know foreign tourism, so it, it can work very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear that. Um, all right. I while we're in the dry section, let's yeah. <laughs> let's let's just plow let's through it before we get to stuff, kind yeah. of yeah before we get to anything else. The um the the I heard some noise somewhere about something to do with something called the delegated act. Now that might also be only applicable to our Euro listeners, but what is that, that has changed recently and what has changed about it or is there any relevance to this to, to what we've been talking about? Yeah, oh, that's a, it's, it's quite boring, but it's a, it, but it's, it's fairly relevant. Do your best uh, to jazz it up for us. Yeah, I mean, what, what the Delegate Act is, is um, it, it maybe needs a little bit of explanation. The, uh, the, the, the ski instruction is quite complicated in a lot of ways in, 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 in a European basis. Like I said, some countries have a single tier of instruction and some have three or four some countries it's a regulated profession in france it's uh, it's regulated like um you know uh, rock climbing would be or you know physiotherapy or or, or other things so they actually have it as a regulated profession in the uk it's not in most of the flatland nations it isn't mm. so that brings additional complications so uh in an effort to harmonize uh, freedom of movement throughout europe um they tried this is back in 2000 to uh come up with a, a framework so that people can move move about and have their qualifications recognized mm. now what they did with ski instruction was basically the french model which was um have a race test uh, the the euro test the giant slalom race mm-hmm. as well as the uh, you know a mountain security uh, exam with with a mountain guide mm. and that sort of defined the what a top level instructor could do and but that what only addressed was the was the the top level to allow you for the right of establishment to set up and and and, uh, have a business in a foreign country Mm -hmm. um that agreement was 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 kind of a gentleman's agreement if you will between between ski instructor associations um between uh, the, the French trade union, the ESF, um, and, it, and it, it worked for, for a few years. Um, but what they tried to do is use ski instruction as a kind of pilot program for a professional card so that you could work throughout Europe. And what they did uh, seven years ago was kind of something called a memorandum of understanding between uh, between all the European nations that had ski instructors and it gave it a little bit more teeth it made it uh, it made it legal because it was governmentally recognized the MOU stamp mm-hmm. which uh, is given to, to, to level fours in Bayesian and uh, top certs and other nations and allows them to move without restriction um, between countries now that was a that was a pilot program for for seven years <laughs> they were trying yeah. to uh, modify the the euro test um, I was quite active in trying to make it a little bit fairer, um, uh, the Eurotest itself. 
Um, and the delegated act is the, 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 the summation of that, where it's actually gone into European law now. So there's a, there's a specific act for ski instructors, and uh, the act contains effectively the, the Eurotest uh, speed test as it stands now with a slightly uh, easier pass percentage. So it used to be 18% for men and 24% for women. Mm-hmm. And after seven years of, uh, of, of discussion, the, 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 the decision was that they're gonna just going to make that a touch easier and, and bumped it up a percentage point. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so that that's uh, oh, that's reassuring that's for everybody. Literally in the last couple of weeks, so that's I'm not sure that's that's actually been signed into European law. Yeah, but each individual country has two years then to enact that to their own local legislation. So I'm I'm not sure that's going to have much impact. Maybe in France at Alpe d'Huez for the people running their Eurotest in in, in December, but we'll, yeah. we'll see how yeah. that goes. Okay, how does that affect these these short term authorizations? Presumably, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah, that's that's the interesting part. So the the the, the delegated act and the MOU before it all refer to temporary provision of services, and that just rather than having a special test for that, they're just saying that we can operate under the general directives, and so effectively nothing's changed in terms of how I operate and how other people do on a temporary mm-hmm. basis. Yeah. And the you know they're talking about the next stage of the of the delegated act is to is to go from just addressing the top search between all the nations and then looking uh, a little bit lower down to see how people can transfer across border uh, with with not having the top certification mm. and work on a temporary basis. Now, there's something called the, it's going to fairly dry, but uh, called the European Qualification Framework. Right. And, and that's how they look at other uh, Qualifications, well, that, that might be physiotherapy, as I touched on, uh, or mm. others. So, mm. if you're a, a governing body, and Basie uh, did a, a lot of good work on this through the Edinburgh University to get their qualifications recognized um, uh, on a European basis. So, uh, a level one Basie is uh, is a is a Scottish qualification uh, of six, for instance, and and yeah. on a European basis, they give that a six. Uh, sorry, a four. Pardon me. Mm-hmm. And so what Basie's done is, is mapped their, you know, each level into, uh, at least for alpine skiing, into the European qualification framework. And mm-hmm. the French have done the same thing. So uh, kind of oddly, <laughs> the uh, a level three and a level four Basie is considered the same level from a European qualifications framework basis. Now, obviously, they're, they're different level skiers, but in terms of, you know, the right to work and substantial differences that mm. it opens up a big can of worms um, because uh, a French qualification is is actually lower than that. All right, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's uh, it's an interesting one. And when when you when you de- when you declare your right to work, they can only reject you if they can show a substantial difference uh, is the terminology between your qualification and training uh, compared to a local guy's. And mm. if we're both the same on on the European qualification framework scale. Uh, it's going to be quite difficult for them to do that. So yeah. um, I'm quite hopeful that, you know, from a temporary provision of services basis, we'll be able to carry on uh, hopefully up until Brexit happens, but we don't want to get into that. Well, I, I was just thinking, I'm sitting here thinking about that because Brexit bloody comes up every, you know, <clears throat> every time uh, in, in these. But actually, you know, I think I would be, I'm not sure exactly how Bayesian position themselves when Brexit comes. Um, I know they're quite in with the Frenchies, but 
you know, there's an awful lot of people who are sitting around with the British qualification who have their, you know, carte professionnelle in France. But, you know, what's going to happen if Brexit comes, you know, the UK is out of the, uh, out of the European Union, those guys' qualification is kind of worthless in the eyes of the French, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, talking to, you know, friends that are ISTDs uh, in France, uh, my understanding of it is, is very much you, you want to get French residency, you want to make sure that you're paying French taxes, um, and you <laughs> want to get as much sort of legal foothold in, in, in say, France or a foreign country that is, as much as possible. Yeah. Um, hopefully you'll get a visa. Um, you know, if you go to the extent of getting French residency, you know, you should be okay. You know, you've got a French, you know, recognized qualification and you're, you're residing in France. Well, but that's I think assuming that the French in, continue you know, to... On a season basis, uh, yeah. you know, charging pounds and, and don't really have any presence in, in those countries, it's, it's mm. going to be difficult. Um, but uh, who knows in some ways. Well, that's one of the one of the issues. I see an awful lot of ski schools who are doing exactly that, right? You know, they're, they're, they're coming, they're taking a whole bunch of money out of the economy, the taxes aren't being paid here. Um you know, and and that, I would be worried if I was those guys, especially if the French turn around and say, "Well, hey, you know," because the French, I'm not sure how much it is, but the French are, are, are presumably they not they, they regard the high vo- high numbers of of British instructors kicking around over on on the French side, and they would love to have them out because it means more work for the for for the the, the French schools. Right. Yeah, there's um, an element. I think. I think you know. You know, I, I, so... I've got a little place in Maribel, and you know, get talking to some of the ESF guys out there, and, and their main beef isn't so much that people are coming in taking their clients; it's more that they're not paying their fair share of social taxes. Well, um, yeah, and, yeah, and which are huge, by the way, in France. You know, and and uh, it's very, it's very difficult, I think, to make a living in France. There's a lot of kind of black money that kicks around, and and. You know, like I say, when guys come in, they, they, they charge the pounds, they come, they stay for four months and then they disappear again. Yeah. That can create a lot of resentment. And I do understand that, you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's a lot of taxes to pay in France, which aren't getting paid or, or should be. Mm. Mm, yeah, I'd be worried about that if I was them. Um, all right, well, let's get off this dry topic. Because <laughs> I'm kind of, my brain's hurting. Um, what's... Um, Let's go back to this topic of big guy skiing. So I think it's quite an important thing because we turn up on exams often. You know, we've been we've been at this for a long time. You know, um, and I've often seen that it's the the sort of the smaller guys who look dynamic. I think there's like a height limit where where you don't look dynamic anymore. I'm not sure where that is. I think it's probably anywhere beyond like six foot, probably. Um, and it's something to do with kind of how quickly your body's able to move from one side to the other. I've often seen people on exams who are kind of, you know, they're doing the right things, gripping in the right place and all of that sort of stuff to, to, to meet the criteria, but they just don't look like they've got it, especially in moguls, especially in sort of shorter turns, you know. Um, is that is that something you've come across on various kind of exam scenarios? You're a, you're a big guy. You yeah, know, you're six you foot. know plus six foot five uh, six four yeah six four. yeah um yeah six four and about you know 98 kilos so you know i, I ski with a different style because i'm i'm big and heavy you know and mm. uh, i i for me i noticed that i you know I, I pretty much i need to work the ski from tip to tail and you know see that can i get gigged on that sometimes on exams where they're saying well just you know roll onto an edge and balance balance through the center of the boot and i'm like well that 
that doesn't work because I'm pushing against 98 kilos, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the same size ski you're on, uh, maybe say, a, you know, fist slalom ski uh, reacts differently if you're 100 kilos as opposed to 60. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there's an element, I mean, I don't, don't want to use that as an excuse, but uh, as much as they like to say, we're just looking at what the skis are doing, I think there's definitely a, an aspect of form um, when you're being examined. Uh, I think... I think any tiny amounts of, say, l- lack of lateral or rotational separation show up more if you're if you're a bigger or taller guy. Yeah, I think there's there's an element of that. So yeah. you just seem to be a little bit more precise in how you ski. Um, and I think there's also a little bit of you know if if everyone you know I was, I was funny I was looking at the the Basie demo team the national team uh, mm. you know the group photo. And I know most of the guys on there, and I'm thinking actually the biggest guy was probably Tom Waddington, who's maybe six foot six one. Yeah, the rest yeah, were sort yeah. of like five six, five eight. Yeah. And you kind of go, well, they ski with a certain style because that's their morphology and that's the way their their body works, and mm-hmm. not necessarily holds true for like to say the, the example the the six foot nine solemn guy. You know, he yeah. he'll ski with a a, a less active way but still achieving big edge angles and and, and high performance out of the ski so it's a uh, you know it, it can be an excuse i think but uh mm. it's something that maybe they should be a bit more aware of it's certainly i mean well I, I think the easiest one to kind of look at is in two equivalent turns i think if your legs are longer your body is longer it's going to take a longer amount of time to get your skis from one side to the other you, you see what i mean so yeah, you've no, got, it, so you're going to look, to be less active, yeah, you're going to be, you're, you're going to look slow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think probably, I'm not really sure, I'm still kind of developing this as a theory, but I think taller guys look like they're inclining more, or maybe they do, um, than someone who is maybe slightly shorter. I get the feeling that it's easier for shorter guys to angulate. Um, uh separate angulate I don't know, the, the word it's kind of I'm, I'm a month out of ski season now so i've lost uh, lost all of my tech words but i get the feeling that that that, that you know it takes to, those two points is it takes if you're a big guy you're plus six foot you're going to incline more but in addition you're going to have you're going to take a longer time to get from one side to the other you haven't got especially if you're smaller right i think smaller people generally tend to kind of move a bit quicker you know right they're a bit more like bird-like you know um, yeah, able to so. make those it's certainly movements. more agile, um, typically more agile. And, uh, and I also think, too, there's a lot. Um, I tend to ski quite square to the skis and, and, and much more stacked because if I, if I counter my hips, it just all goes wrong because I'm so heavy. It just all, the, you know, the skis break away and they don't work very well. Mm. And sometimes that can be, you know, it depends on what people are looking for. But uh, if, you're, if you're not putting enough, you know, counter rotational separation and Maybe it's a big guy. You, you just can't afford to, you know. Otherwise, the skis just don't work. Mm, mm. No, I think there is that, and I think that's something that probably should be taken into consideration. I wonder. I wonder if it's something that say, um, maybe I need to go and look at the the Dutch videos from like Interski or something like that, because the Dutch as a as a populace generally tend to be a lot taller. You know, they're, they're, I think they're the tallest nation in the world, or something. So maybe, maybe there's a way to go and look at that. But I'm kind of what six foot, six foot one, something like that. And I'm kind of, I don't know. I really feel that this is this is a thing. Um, you know, if you're a sort of a larger gentleman, I wonder also if if it's taken into account with something like the PSIA, because the the general populace tends to be a bit heavier over there, 
or a bit bigger. I think my my times that I've been in the US, everyone's kind of just a bit bit bigger built, um, which I think you know maybe is reflected in how they ski. I don't know. Maybe I need to go and check out those two videos from Interski and see if I can find them. Yeah. Well, I think there's also probably getting old as well. I'm probably older than your average guy, you know, running these exams and, you know, I probably got the agility of a battleship. You know, <laughs> my advanced years, you know, kind of thing. So that doesn't help either. Yeah, well, fair play for you for keeping at it. How are you How are you doing with the exam road? So you said to me you're ISA cert, but I guess you've, you've got all the other bits and pieces apart from what in Bayesian would be Eurotest and something else. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I, I I did my level three or you know, I saw a stamp of God, 10 years ago now, and I was quite happy with that. I was doing everything I wanted to do. And yeah. it really wasn't up until about four or five years ago that I started race training. Um, not so much to get my level four award, but it was just because um, I felt a bit of a fraud with the kids I was putting into Super G courses and things like that. You know, and I'm thinking, yeah. I just haven't, haven't been in there, you know. So did some, did some race training and uh, quite enjoyed that, you know, and, and uh, then thought, well, actually, with a bit of work, I could bang out that Euro test and, and uh, did one, oh, I don't know, three, four years ago. Mm. And uh, it came 72nd out of 100. So, hey. you know, it wasn't, uh, yeah, you know, but, you know, managed to finish and stuff um, and, and stuck with it for a while. But uh, I, I think, at, you know, I'm, I'm 57 this year. So trying to trying to pass the Euro test, I think the oldest to ever get it was probably 45 or 46, something like that. So it's a, yeah, yeah. it's a big ask the older you get. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I think it is important. I'm going to go and do that in Sasfe in the summer when I get get some time because uh, we're doing more and more race coaching, and I kind of feel like I need to brush up on my my GS skills just to kind of this the same thing really. It's just to it's just to kind of be able to practice what you preach in a way. Um, you know, it's nice to set and it's nice to give all the advice that you kind of got, but actually. I'm also got a little plan to go and do some, <clears throat> to go and do a couple of like masters races or something next year just for fun, just to go and do mm. something new, um, new and interesting, or or just to keep keep the ski season interesting. Certainly, um, that's on the agenda. I'm going to find out where they are and then put them in my diary. And make sure I don't kind of block myself off with work or whatever. Because um, there was a couple in Chatel this year. The British Masters, I think, was in Chatel. Um, yeah, which was, I yeah. could have gone, but I was I was working at the time, so I didn't get a chance to do it. Um, but yeah, so cool. All right. Um, I think what I'm going to do is knock it on the head there. Now, what I do normally, Scott, is I give everyone a chance to kind of promo their, their own thing. So where can people find you and where can people get in touch with you if they, if they want to, if they want to sort of ski with you or do more, uh, or, or find out more about some of the stuff that you've talked about? Okay, yeah, uh, well, it's just the easiest thing is a website. We've got a pretty comprehensive site uh, at insideoutskiing, all one word, dot com. Insideoutskiing.com, cool. Yeah, and uh, one, you know, maybe in that same notion of uh, promoting a little bit, um, because we work with quite strong recreational skiers, we also found over the years we're doing a lot of level one preparation. So I, I do quite a bit of that working with uh, early stage skiers. So we've put about two, got, getting on for 50 now up through their level one through Bayesian and IAZ. Really? So in the summertime we run, yeah, we run, we run preparation courses. Um, I meant uh, to ask you about that. So, so, well, okay, this is, this is good. There's another tangent then. So you're, you're prepping people to go and take their Bayesian level one ski instructor. So they've reached a certain recreational skiing level. Yeah. And then they're looking for the next challenge, which will be an introductory ski uh, instructor exam, I guess. 
Yeah, it, it, it really came about. Um, I mentioned uh, Derek uh, Chandler. You know, we got chat, chatting, and he was having to fail people at their level ones, and he was really frustrated because he said it was just a you know, little bit of training to, to tune them up. They, you know, stood a much better chance. And I'm like, mm-hmm. hmm, that's a good idea. Yeah. So, uh, so we, uh, like seven years ago now, we started uh, like called an instructor fast track course where we do uh, one Saturday a month over the summer for three for three sessions mm-hmm. to kind of not a mock exam, but just to kind of you know get into some of the terminology do a little mock teaching session but but mainly on per, personal performance introduce them to you know the progression through from you know plow to, to, to parallel skiing mm. and then they can hit the ground running and, it, and it's worked quite, quite well and, and you know there are people that are you know keen enthusiastic recreational skiers that generally don't have a you know the thought isn't i want to be a career ski instructor but you know they just want to get a bit better and maybe teach their friends or family mm. uh but off the back of that, we found, you know, a couple go on to get their level twos and uh, more than a few are on staff at, at Hemel. And uh, oh, it's yeah. nice. So we've developed a little training group for them. And, you know, we do a monthly session for professional development that people working towards their level two and level three. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that's something if any of your listeners are interested, that's uh, that's running over the summer as well. Oh, that's great. Well, also, that's a way of giving something back to, to the slope, right? You know, because... Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, for me, it was a lot of it was uh, at. So, you know, like I met you, you know, people that are working towards a level three and four, um, you just meet people, you know, whether it's training groups or your test training or tech preparation, and you just get to know everybody. Um, but that doesn't really happen at level one and two. And so I, I was trying to really promote that at the, at the snow center and uh, it's working out well. All right. That's really, really great. That's really great. Um, cool. All right. Well, thank you for that, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to be interviewed. I really, really appreciate um, you giving up your time and giving us all this super super stuff today. That's really cool of you. Sorry, yeah, I know some of it was pretty boring and legal, but uh, hopefully <laughs> somebody gets some benefit out of it. Yeah, cool. All right, fantastic. Um, 